Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Sidetrack episode 19, Julian the Apostate. Welcome back to A to Z History Presents the History of the Papacy podcast. I'm Steve, your host for this podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. This is an installment of our Sidetrack episodes where we take a closer look at topics in papal and church history that are interesting but somewhat tangential to the stories we tell in the main episodes. The story of Julian II, Emperor of Rome, may be slightly tangential to the history of the popes of Rome, but it certainly is not tangential to the overall history of Christianity during the later middle part of the 4th century AD. There is absolutely nothing boring about the 4th century for the Roman Empire or Christianity. Maybe you've heard the old saying, March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. The 4th century came in like a lion, pretty much stayed that way the entire time, and went out like a lion. The 3rd century had some lulls in the action, but not the 4th century, and the 5th is going to keep us on our toes as well. Julian was such a unique emperor in so many ways. For one thing, he probably never should have been emperor in the first place. Julian was born in 331 or 332 AD. He was a grandchild of Constantius Chlorus through the son of a half-brother of Constantine. When Constantine died in 337, Constantius II had just about every male family member murdered so that he and his brothers could be secure in their leadership of the empire. Just as an aside, isn't that ridiculous? Kill every male family member so that they won't be usurpers? Who would think of that? I suppose killing all possible claimants to the throne wasn't new at the time and has happened many, many times since then, but that is seriously harsh. Anyways, Constantius II may have been up to something because the very small handful of male family members of the Constantine clan he left around, did in fact try to usurp the throne. One of those family members would be the man of the hour today. Julian, his brother, and a cousin were all spared because of their relative youth, and each one of those guys is going to cause trouble. In 337, Julian would have been no older than six and possibly as young as four when the major purge went down. 
What's up with this apostate thing being tacked onto Julian's name, you might ask? Well, that's the real purpose of this episode. Chances are you've read books or listened to other podcasts, audiobooks, or whatever on Julian, so you probably have some background on the man. I think at this point, though, it's important for us to contextualize him into the story we are telling here. We'll be doing that quite a bit as the show progresses. We need to know how these secular political leaders interacted with the religious aspects of society and government. Some emperors kept the religious world at an arm's length. Others were hip-deep in religious affairs. At this point, we are very Roman Empire-focused, and that will be the case for a while yet. But don't you worry, other nations will be getting involved soon. Julian is called the apostate by Christians because, well, by their perspective, that's what he was. Julian was born and raised a Christian, but in his late teens, rejected the Christian religion. Apostate is the name the Christians gave Julian, and it just kind of stuck. It has more of a ring to it than Julian II, anyways. It isn't exactly clear when or exactly how Julian turned away from Christianity. He was 100% raised a Christian. But it was unavoidable not to be exposed to pagan ideas with his classical Greek education. Here's an interesting point, which I haven't found much about, but I think is of note. Julian received a thorough Christian education, as you would expect, of a princeling in the court of Constantine to receive. But in his late teens, Julian was ordained a reader of the church. The minor office of lector or reader was and is to some degree still one of the first steps on the way to becoming ordained to the priesthood. I may be totally off base here because, as I said, I haven't seen any mention of this, but it could be possible that Julian was intended to join the priesthood. To me, this possibility sounds plausible because the priesthood is a good way to defang a possible claimant to the imperial throne without actually killing him. In later times, emperors and secular princes would force troublesome relatives to join monasteries or convents. Well, this is neither here nor there, but it is something to think about when we try to get into Julian's head about why he rejected the religion of his youth so thoroughly and tried not to only reinvigorate paganism, but really to try and recreate it. The year 351 is when it is traditionally believed that Julian officially apostatized or converted to paganism, so to speak. When he was around 18 years old, Julian went to Ephesus in Asia Minor, where he was schooled by a famous pagan Neoplatonist philosopher. In 355, Julian was sent to the Rhine frontier to fight Germanic barbarian armies that were causing serious problems up there, probably because Constantius was running out of trustworthy family members. During this time, Julian was named to the position of Caesar, By all accounts, Julian did a very competent job as Caesar in Gaul. He instituted some very good governmental reforms and defended the frontier quite well. I won't go into the economic aspects in great deal as I did with Diocletian, but his tax policy is fascinating to me. Julian was one of the first proponents of the idea that if the government lowers tax rates and simplifies the tax code, the government can raise more revenue. Later, the Islamic scholar and historian Ibn Khaldun would write about this topic, and the modern-day economist Arthur Laffer would be a proponent of the idea with his Laffer curve. 
The government was in desperate need of funds, and one of Julian's top advisors demanded that taxes be greatly increased. Sounds logical, right? Certainly lowering taxes doesn't sound logical to increase revenue. What Julian and later thinkers would posit is that if taxes are lowered as well as made fairer and easier to pay, the incentives for tax evasion will be lowered, therefore increasing revenue. Obviously, there's a point of diminishing returns with this, hence the curve and Laffer curve. There is a point on the curve where if taxes continue to be lowered, revenue starts to fall. Making the taxation system better would definitely be a part of good government reforms at that time. The tax system was a joke, with all the corrupt tax farmers and all that. Just ridiculous. Nobody had any incentive to pay their taxes. The main incentive was to hoard your money and hope the tax farmer wouldn't find out, thereby draining important resources from the economy. Well, let's move on before I dig myself any deeper of a hole with my own economic theories. I have a feeling they aren't that popular. I bring these policies of Julian's up mostly to show that Julian was an out-of-the-box thinker in just about every way. He was highly educated and very intelligent. You could almost say too intelligent and too educated because he took pie-in-the-sky ideas that may have been good philosophical talk at the symposium, but oftentimes didn't translate well into real life. It is always interesting to see how well highly educated intellectuals will fare in the practical day-to-day battlefield which is real governance. Well, in 360, Julian must have been doing something right because Constantius cooked up a plan to put him in his place. Constantius called for Julian to deliver him several units of his best troops for an expedition against the Persians. Julian's crack Germanic troops didn't like that one bit. For one thing, they had only signed up to fight in Gaul and the Rhine frontier. Secondly, they were in favor of Julian. Well, in camp at modern-day Paris, France, Julian's army revolted and proclaimed Julian Augustus. Julian went back to Constantius and said he wasn't a usurper at all, but Constantius wasn't buying that. He began to march against Julian, but before a full-blown civil war could open up, Constantius died, leaving Julian as the last man standing in 361. Since the Edict of Milan all the way back in 313, all religions were officially tolerated. Constantine favored Christianity, but that was about it. He preferred Christianity, but didn't give it too many extra benefits. As time went by, though, the sons of Constantine went further. They banned certain types of sacrifices, closed some temples, and generally created a more restrictive environment for the various forms of paganism. The mystery cults were particularly hard hit. In Rome, Constantius had the Temple of Victory removed while he was in town, and that was a big deal. It was about this time that the Chronography of 354 came out. The Chronography of 354 is a calendar of sorts created by a Dionysius Philocalis. This document contains the first written reference to the date of Christmas. Julian proclaimed Christianity as late as 361, but as soon as he became emperor, he completely abandoned Christianity. I really don't think that sat well with most folk, especially in the East. 
Julian's religious policy on the surface was to go back to complete religious toleration. What he really did was try to tip the scales in the other direction. He didn't want to outlaw Christianity. Instead, he wanted to find a way to have Christianity wither on the vine. He thought if he took away the government incentives, along with allowing the internal struggles Christians were having play out without government interference, the Christians would just fall apart. After Christianity fell apart, the people would jump ship and go back to paganism. Julian didn't want outright persecution because he knew that would create martyrs, and martyrs were gold for keeping and gaining new converts. The policy Julian chose was what you might call a soft persecution. No Christians had to sacrifice to the gods or face severe penalties. Instead, the policy Julian put in place simply steered preferential government policies away from Christians and moved them to other groups. The civil government wasn't going to get involved or play favorites in any of the theological arguments raging in Christianity. Quite the opposite. Julian brought back exiled Aryans to the empire so that they might stir the pot even more. I suppose you could say that antagonism against Christianity was Julian's main religious policy. Julian pretty much laid out what he thought about Christianity in his book called Against the Galileans. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it. And customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP two three zero six zero five, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP two three zero six zero five, and I really do recommend you give this product a try, and I'll talk to you next time. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, 
Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. The term Galilean was a sort of hip name contemporary pagan scholars used derisively against the Christians. Only pagans or apostate Christians were raised or recruited for important jobs in the empire. Another policy Julian put in place was removing and banning Christians from teaching in secular schools. This was probably one of the more controversial policies against the Christians. For one thing, it was a great idea if you wanted to phase out Christian thought. If you want to eliminate a way of thinking, the best way to nip it in the bud is not allow it to be taught. The Jesuits have a saying that goes something like, Give me a child for the first seven years, and for the rest you may do what you like. What this quote is saying is that formative primary education makes a huge impact on the beliefs a person will have for the rest of their lives. If children, as their basic early education, was an education that was pagan, you could make more pagans. The problem was, the Christians were the masters of classical education. Remember old Origen? He was world-renowned as an expert in all things classical, and that was like a hundred years earlier. They just couldn't find many competent teachers who weren't churchmen. Even pagan teachers didn't think this was a good policy. Local pagan populations got the general message that Christians were no longer preferred. One example was in Alexandria when George, the Arian bishop of the city, got angry about a temple that was being refurbished. George raised a ruckus, but the local pagans went ahead and went wild. They imprisoned George and then tortured and murdered him. Edward Gibbon, of Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire fame, said this is where the English get their patron St. George from, George, the Arian Bishop of Alexandria. Gibbon, not a huge fan of Christianity, used this as a gotcha moment against the Christians of England. He was all like, look at these silly Christians saying a heretic Arian of Alexandria was their patron saint. Well, I guess the laugh was on Edward because George of Alexandria was never the George anyone in the Orthodox camp thought was the St. George. The St. George, who has always been a super popular saint, was also born in Cappadocia, but died about 60 years previously during the persecution of Diocletian. I mean, you got to give Gibbon some break. It was an easy mistake to make, but still. Anyway... Julian took the opportunity of the Arian George's demise to raid his very extensive classical library. Athanasius also took the opportunity to return to Alexandria from one of his many exiles. Athanasius wouldn't last long, though. Julian almost immediately sent him back into exile. Next, we have to talk about Julian's relationship with Judaism, because it is complicated and fascinating. Someone who is as schooled in the Christian catechism as Julian would know how deep and rocky history between the Christians and the Jews was. Julian saw a gigantic wedge there, and he decided to drive the wedge as far as he could. Julian had a plan to firstly abolish the Fiscus Judaicus and other taxes specifically levied on Jews. Secondly, rebuild the temple, and thirdly, create a proto-what you might call Zionist Jewish state in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, ruled by the Jewish patriarch of Jerusalem. All of these policies weren't devised out of some great love for Judaism or the Jewish people. Julian largely didn't like Judaism. 
He didn't like that the Jews thought they were the chosen people of God and the exclusivity of it. But as past pagan practice went, he did respect that the God of the Jews was their national God and that they held an ancient religion that included sacrifices. The Jews of the Diaspora and the Holy Land were a bit dubious of these policies, though. Can you blame them for being dubious? The Roman Empire was never a big fan of the Jews, and they had fought many wars against each other. Now a Roman emperor came along and said he was going to rebuild the temple? Many Jewish scholars didn't believe that Julian or the whole situation remotely met the biblical requirements for the reconstruction of the temple. I think in the end, the only outcome of Julian's strategy of antagonizing the relationship between the Jews and the Christians was really to further sour their relationship. Building up and tolerating Judaism for religious tolerance's sake is one thing. I mean, that's a good thing. But to do it purposefully to harm another religion didn't do any favors for anyone in this situation. This is maybe another example of Julian being too clever by half. Julian also worked to build a new and improved paganism, which was heavily modeled on aspects of Christianity. This new and improved paganism had a hierarchical organization based on the bishops of Christianity. Things like new regional high priests that were to act like and compete with Christian metropolitan bishops were added. Local pagan priests were to deliver sermons and provide alms and charity to those in needs and the like. It really irked Julian that the Christians not only provided alms to their own, but also to pagans. Really, a lot of things seriously irked Julian. He didn't like that many everyday pagans didn't know how to properly perform the rites and sacrifices anymore. He was angry that his new paganism didn't seem to catch on, and so on and so forth. As Julian's reign progressed, he became more sullen and began to sulk. He was even compared to a petulant child. Maybe that assessment isn't fair, but I think Julian just couldn't square his high ideal to the practical situation he found himself in. Julian's demise came when he cooked up the idea to conquer, or at least attack, the Persian Empire. It wasn't a very well-conceived plan right from the beginning, and after some initial success, completely fell apart. Julian was forced to withdraw back to Roman territory. During that withdrawal, he was killed in some manner on the battlefield. I say in some manner because it isn't clear exactly how he died. More than likely, he was killed in some sort of accidental friendly fire situation during a rolling cavalry battle. Other possibilities include that he was killed by angry Christians. They alternatively are blamed or take credit, depending on the writer. The apocryphal last words, as recorded by Theodoret of Julian, are supposed to be, Galilean, you have conquered. As fun and ironic as that would be, those almost assuredly are not his last words. Upon the death of Julian, the soldiers proclaimed Jovian emperor. Jovian wasn't really trying to be emperor and may not have wanted the role, but he took it. Jovian was solidly a Nicene Orthodox Christian and fairly quickly reversed all of Julian's pro-pagan policies. To wrap up this episode, we have to talk about the alternative history consequences of Julian's reign, and what if it had not ended so abruptly. Some think if Julian had ruled a few or even many more years, the empire would have been a very different place. These people say paganism would have rebuilt itself, and if not wiping out Christianity, 
it would have at least relegated Christianity to being a small minority in the Roman Empire. Following that logic, they would say, there would have never been crusades, pogroms, inquisitions, or any of the other persecutions of violent Christianity. I'm going to disagree with these assumptions based on several points. Much of these arguments are based on a neo-paganism romanticism that Greco-Roman paganism was somehow more peaceful and tolerant than Christianity. Let's just look at whether the Romans were a peaceful lot when they were pagan. The gladiatorial games were definitely violent, and these were suppressed and even eventually banned under Christian rulers. Julian himself was killed while raging aggressive war, not exactly a peaceful act. The whole history of Roman slavery, territorial annexation, and the Roman military is the story of a warrior culture. In many ways, Christianity tempered some of those violent aspects of Roman culture. The Christianity of Augustine, who we will discuss soon, brought us the idea of just war theory. The whole idea is that a shift in governmental policy could reverse the trend of people converting to Christianity is on very shaky ground. This line of logic goes that Constantine and his sons highly incentivized people to convert to Christianity, and that is what really got people to convert en masse to the religion. If only Julian had the opportunity to change these incentives to paganism, the bureaucratic administration would have gone back to paganism and the people would soon follow. This line of logic kind of follows that paganism was the default position, but by this point in time, depending on where you were in the empire, Christianity had very deep roots. This leads us to my next point, demographics. By most accountings, by the time of Constantine and his sons, Christianity was at most a bare majority and possibly even a minority religion. It is important to remember, when these population numbers are thrown about, we have to consider them with several large pinches of salt. These general numbers of less than a majority of Christians empire-wide misses the underlying story. The number of Christians weren't equally distributed throughout the empire. Instead, they were concentrated in a few key areas, predominantly in the big cities and in the east. As just one example, Julian tried to revive certain pagan ceremonies in Cappadocia, in the far eastern end of Anatolia, but he couldn't find any local pagans to fulfill the rites, as nearly everyone was Christian. Julian may have had his eye on Cappadocia because this was the home of a rising group of highly educated, highly motivated, cutting-edge theologians who would be called the Cappadocian Fathers. Places like Anatolia, Syria, Palestine, Mesopotamia, and Egypt had been trending Christian for a long time, and the roots had grown deep. The wealthy areas of the empire that Julian needed to control were already very Christian, and there wasn't much he could do about it. Even to this day, after over a millennium of minimal toleration at best and outright persecution at worst, many areas of modern-day Egypt and the Middle East have pockets of Christianity that go back to the 4th century and earlier. If Julian truly followed a policy of removing civil government from religion, that would have been a monumental change. But all of this would be based on Julian having a long reign. But again, the numbers weren't acting in Julian's favor. 
Not many emperors at that time had long reigns, so instead of being a possible point of departure for much larger social change, Julian was just a blip on the radar. In the end, that analogy of a blip on the radar probably wraps up Julian's time wearing the purple. An interesting sidetrack or footnote before the big changes of Theodosius and the revolutionary times of the 5th century. The History of the Papacy podcast is a proud member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network, where you can also check out many other great podcasts, including the History Collage. Keep your podcast feeds refreshed because there will be a ton of great stuff coming out this winter and spring from the HistoryPodcasters.com network including the next history collage on alcohol and history. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Roman popes and Christian church.